0: Occasionally on NANCAST, we'll have important news from NAN or other sponsors. We're so grateful for the support that allows NANCAST to keep producing engaging content and helps drive improved neonatal outcomes. It's conference time and registration for NAN's virtual 37th annual conference is open. There's no doubt we'd all love to be together in person this fall, but budget and travel restrictions as well as safety concerns related to the COVID variants are going to keep us safe at home. NANS conference offers more than 40 hours of CNE available live September 13th through the 15th or on demand through February 1st, 2022. This means you can apply some credits to 2021 and some to next year. Don't miss out on new virtual ways to connect with your nursing peers while receiving the latest education on hot topics like marijuana and breastfeeding, transplants, acute kidney injury, Down syndrome diagnosis, and so much more. Secure your spot today at nan.org forward slash conference. Hello, and welcome to NANCAST. I'm Jill, your host. NICU nurses all know how crucial human milk is to our vulnerable population. We also are aware of the challenges that families face, especially during today's healthcare environment. How can we support our families to increase our rates of human milk in our NICUs? How do we mitigate those challenges? It's my pleasure to have a leading scientist in human milk, Dr. Diane Spatz, join us to discuss these challenges. Dr. Diane Spatz is a professor of perinatal nursing and the Helen M. Shearer Professor of Nutrition at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, sharing a joint appointment as a nurse scientist in lactation at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and founder of the CHOP Lactation Program and Mother's Milk Bank. Dr. Spatz is an active researcher, clinician, and educator who is internationally recognized for her work surrounding the use of human milk and breastfeeding, particularly in vulnerable populations. Dr. Spatz has been a PI or co-investigator of over 60 research grants, including several from the NIH. She has authored and co-authored over 195 peer-reviewed publications and written numerous book chapters related to human milk and breastfeeding. In 2004, Dr. Spatz developed her 10-step model for human milk and breastfeeding in vulnerable infants. This model has been implemented in NICUs throughout the U.S. and other countries worldwide. Dr. Spatz is the only Ph.D. prepared nurse appointed to the Congressional Task Force on Research Specific to Pregnant Women and Lactating Women. Dr. Spatz has also been appointed to a World Health Organization Task Force on human milk and milk banking globally. Dr. Spatz was elected to the Executive Committee of International. National Society of Research in Human Milk and Lactation in April 2020. Her nurse-driven models of care are critical in improving human milk and breastfeeding outcomes and thus the health of women and children globally. Let's get right into it. Hello, Dr. Spatz. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I think COVID is on everybody's mind. Um, We're not really sure how to explain breastfeeding to parents around COVID. And, and we all know, working in the units, how COVID is affecting our everyday life. So what are your thoughts and, and your expertise on how COVID, the pandemic, impacted birth and breastfeeding?
1: Yeah, that was a great first question to start with. Um, I've actually been part of a lot of global work and national work, about human milk and breastfeeding and the COVID-19 pandemic. Unfortunately, the pandemic has not been good for birth and breastfeeding. Despite the World Health Organization endorsing breastfeeding and human milk from the very start of the pandemic, many hospitals have not followed their guidance. Um, If you look at the World Health Organization guidance, it always states that early skin-to-skin and direct breastfeeding should be the first choice, even if a parent is um, feeling, you know, or having COVID, all right? If someone is feeling unwell, the next choice is to have them express milk. And if that's not available... Um, The recommendation is pasteurized donor human milk. And the World Health Organization even goes on to recommend wet nursing or informal milk sharing before formula, which is not usually seen in the U.S. Unfortunately, we have had neonatal intensive care units who have closed their units to parents. We know that people have been made to go through birth without partner support. Um, it's been very isolating for families. Some work that I did early in the pandemic last, uh, March and April, where we interviewed first time parents and their experiences, um, there was a lot of stress, anxiety, guilt because they felt like they weren't as important as COVID patients, um. Frustration with the healthcare system and the ever changing recommendations. Uh, so it has been quite negative for childbearing families. Now, the pandemic's been going on now for over a year, and we have conclusive evidence that someone who is exposed to COVID makes antibodies. And those antibodies are in human milk. So Dr. Rebecca Powell from New York City has over 800 COVID-recovered subjects. And there is a persistent and robust antibody response. Okay, so the babies are getting good stuff from breastfeeding, which of course that makes sense because that's what we know. Breastfeeding protects against all types of respiratory illnesses, which is what COVID is. And all kinds of other infections. We also have data now that shows when people get the vaccine, they produce antibody response. So, I mean, this all makes perfect sense if you think about human milk and breastfeeding from a scientific standpoint. However, many people have treated COVID not from a scientific standpoint. Right? Yeah. And that's one of the real challenges. That's one of the real challenges. I think for me, the other big concern, really big concern I have, is that COVID has negatively or disproportionately negatively affected low income women and people of color. So for the well-educated white woman who got to stay home and work from home, breastfeeding durations actually went up because they're like, oh, I don't have to pump anymore. I can just breastfeed my baby. Oh, I'm not going to wean when the baby's a year. I'm going to keep going because I'm home with the baby. But we know um, that breastfeeding rates in low-income women and in people of color have gone down significantly. And... We already had such terrible disparities in the United States. And now the pandemic is just widening those gaps. And so I, I really worry about this because we know that the lack of breastfeeding or the lack of provision of human milk has an intergenerational impact. So, for example... I was not breastfed as a child. That means I'm at higher risk for hypertension. I'm at higher risk for heart disease. I'm at higher risk for diabetes. I'm at higher risk for obesity. I'm at higher risk to have poor pregnancy outcomes. Many of those diseases that can be mitigated by human milk and breastfeeding, right, also have negative impact on lactation, and the establishment of milk supply. So then I go on to have my baby, and I have a less than ideal breastfeeding experience. And so now my baby is becoming less healthy. And when that baby grows up, they're going to have children that are less healthy. And so it's a really terrible negative intergenerational cycle that could be broken, if we think about human milk and breastfeeding as being essential to mitigate against toxic stress, and if we actually gave all families appropriate research-based information about the science of human milk and the physiology of lactation so that they could effectively establish a milk supply for their child, which then would allow them to be able to provide milk, not only in the short term, but in the long term.
0: I love the use of the science of human milk, and that's something that is so important. And us as nurses, we hold that key, that key of education for our parents. And just the scientific evidence that you told us about COVID and, you know, with the benefits of human milk, that's the stuff that we need to be teaching these parents. And it it needs to be established in our prenatal visits before, you know, they're even um, at the delivering hospital or their child's in the NICU, because there's so much negativity around COVID. I know when it first started, moms that were COVID positive were terrified to even do skin to skin, because we didn't, we didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we have that science that we can back that up. And that, that really needs to be, and that's why it's important to, to hear your um, findings and what you've researched, so we can share that information with our parents.
1: Yeah, and it has to be with the whole family, too. So, it, so a lot of times, there is a tendency, you know, someone comes in for prenatal care, they get asked the question when they're six weeks pregnant, do you want to breast or bottle feed? They check a box and no one ever brings it up again, right? And we know that's not the right question. You know, our question should be: tell me what you've heard about human milk. Tell me what you've heard about breastfeeding. Do you know anyone who's ever done this? You know, what does your partner think about it? And then when we are working with that family, it has to be working with the whole family, right? Because the lactating person doesn't do it in isolation. And so when we're teaching and educating and preparing, it needs to be that whole support team, however it is that that support team is defined, you know, whether it's talking to dad, same-sex partner, grandmom, sisters, cousins, like it's got to be that whole family who comes together to understand this is really important and we, to, we need to make this happen. And one of the things I'm, I'm very proud about is that, you know, at the Center for Fetal Diagnosis and Treatment and the Special Delivery Unit at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, we never separated parents from their children. We never closed the NICU. We never prevented holding. We never prevented breastfeeding. Like We always supported human milk and breastfeeding. But something that was really key, because a lot of our families come from, over 70% of our families come from over 100 miles away to give birth um, at our special delivery unit. And um, <clears throat> we really taught families the importance of quarantining together very early on, right, so that before the vaccine was out, right, before we had that option to get people vaccinated, but having people quarantined together so that people weren't isolated and could have some support. And now, the fo- you know, now our focus is on you get everyone in your family vaccinated, you know, <laughs> before you give birth so that you can have that network of people to support your family.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, It's so nice that a lot of other hospitals now that had that mindset of of restricting visitation to just one parent are lifting those. So hopefully, you know, we can see these, the use of human milk and breastfeeding increase after that little dip with with COVID. So tell us about uh, your 10-step model for human milk and breastfeeding in vulnerable infants and how that can help us um, explain these things to parents and help educate the family.
1: Excellent. So, Uh, I was very fortunate that I got my Ph.D. when I was very young, went to school for a bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. all right in a row, and I, finishing my Ph.D., we had a grant funded by the National Institutes of Health to improve human milk and breastfeeding in low birth weight infants. And so, you know, lo and behold, if you give people expert care by masters prepared advanced practice nurses, human milk and breastfeeding rates go up. I mean, to me, it's not rocket science, but people aren't even today still doing that. And so, when that grant finished, I was recruited to Children's Hospital Philadelphia. And I knew immediately that if I tried to, so for example, apply the principles of the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative, to a children's hospital, that is never going to work. Okay, um, you know, you say to a neonatal nurse, you know, go sit through a BFHI course. They're like, no, let me stick needles in my eyes. You know, <laughs> because it's not what neonatal nurses need, right? It is not mm-hmm. what we do. And so I, I, from my research, <clears throat> um, I really knew that we needed to develop a new model right and so that's what I did and at this point you know the original article was published in 2004 there has been an updated one with new evidence in 2018 um we have implemented this model um in NICUs across the United States um in Thailand in China in Japan in Australia, in Europe, and we have outcome data to show that it works, whether you're a low-income country, middle-income country, high-income country, whether you have, you know, universal health care or not, all right? And I think there's two really critical things that are important about the model, that we've actually even demonstrated since COVID that these have become important for all families, not just families who have sick babies who are hospitalized. And that is the first two steps of the model. Okay, so the first step is informed decision-making. And the second (coughs) is (coughs) initiation and maintenance of milk supply. And so, again, we've seen the negative impact of COVID on breastfeeding rates, and that's because people aren't learning science. Practitioners aren't taking the time during prenatal care to really assess and teach and help prepare the family to get the best start. And... One of the things that I developed as part of that informed decision making process is kind of that tailored prenatal approach, which focuses on the science of human milk, the physiology of lactation. And also that prenatal risk assessment to understand if there are factors that may impact the parents coming to volume, okay? So really doing our due diligence before someone gives birth to set them up to have the best possible outcome. And again, it shouldn't be asking someone how they want to feed their baby it should be tell me what you've heard about human milk and breastfeeding and then one by one allaying any fears or concerns they might have because there are a lot of people who have fears and concerns because of friends or family members or colleagues that have had negative experiences or because they think that it's just not something that is, you know, their family doesn't do. And we had a, a paper published just recently in 2020 where we looked at the lactation outcomes of families who participated in group prenatal care or the centering model at my institution. And not all of our families come with prenatal intent to provide milk. But as part of that centering uh, model, they actually have an hour plus session where we focus on this content area. And with that tailored intervention, 100% of the families initiated lactation. And not only did they start, but 87% of those babies. We're still getting human milk at discharge. Wow. Okay. Way higher than any national rates. Okay. So informed decision-making is really critical. And we know that it's not happening now because if people were truly making informed decisions, we wouldn't have the tremendous geographic, racial, and ethnic disparities that exist in the U.S. even prior to COVID.
0: With that model where they're meeting in groups, are there parents that had experience with breastfeeding previously to help dispel some of their fears or questions that they may have? Well, sometimes
1: there's parents who've had negative breastfeeding experiences before and are like, oh, I wasn't gonna do it this time. But then <laughs> now she, I heard she has and now, some, uh, right, and now I learned and now I figured out, oh, why it didn't go well for me the first time or why I had those out, you know, those outcomes. So there's lots of ways in which you can deliver that tailored intervention. It doesn't have to be through group prenatal care, it could be through one on one. Um, there's a, we have a movie that I, I wrote and produced called The Power of Pumping DVD. And The Power of Pumping DVD is a 20 minute educational intervention that, you know, anyone can watch and they can learn in 20 minutes exactly what they need to know, um, to make an informed decision and to get the best start. But it's like we, meaning the collective we of the world, um, have to be willing to change the current paradigm. We have to be willing to say that status quo is not good enough.
0: Exactly. We always talk about, I know a lot of NICUs probably discuss what are our breastfeeding rates? What are our breastfeeding rates at discharge? But are you doing anything to figure out how to amend that or create increased rates? Sometimes they don't. We just report and we learn, but we don't We don't try to figure out what's going on or how, how can we fix that?
1: And this is a huge problem because most babies get discharged from NICUs on formula. They don't get discharged on human milk. And so it's like even in places that have high initiation rates, they don't have good continuation, which means people probably didn't get the right information, right, about why human milk was important or... Step two of the model, initiation and maintenance of milk supply, they didn't get given the right information to effectively increase milk supply. And, you know, this is where <clears throat> with my implementation, we have data from Florida um, that show when they use the model, human milk rates went up threefold at discharge. They tripled. They were like 30 wow. percent, to 90 percent. Um In Japan, the human milk rates went from under 20% to over 46% in just a six-month period of time. And then they continued to increase. Um, And in Thailand, you know, a a lower-income country, they also were able to statistically significantly increase their rates, right? And I think, like... When someone says, oh, well, our initiation rate is 90% or our initiation rate is 95%, I'm like, well, that's fantastic. Tell me about what your rate is at discharge. They don't then, want to. <laughs>
0: then, I'll, then I'll tell you if you can celebrate or not. Exactly. And and that, I think, is for most NICU nurses, that is a struggle when you have a parent come to you and say, I want to breastfeed, but my milk supply is is decreasing what can I do to do that and I and I don't know if nurses are equipped some of us aren't equipped enough with the ability to explain to mom how can we increase your milk supplier or when you start to notice that it is starting to you know decrease let's catch it then and I and I don't think we, we're very good at that <laughs> and I, and I don't know and that's something that when I said when you look at your rates, Okay, now let's try to fix that. So how right. how can we how can we help mom establish a better milk supply and and try to stop that before it starts happening? Right. So and for a NICU nurse, okay, this can be hard because
1: a NICU nurse is so focused on the baby. They have that new admission and they're like airway, breathing, circulation, right? Mhm. <laughs> it that, is. It's true. And that's what they think about. However. As I always say to anyone I work with, I say, it doesn't have to be number one on your priority list, but it can't not be on your list at all. So we have really significant data that shows that pumping within the first hour statistically significantly increases milk supply by day Five by day seven by day fourteen, long term by six weeks. Okay, so you know the NICU nurse if they're getting report on the baby, they need to then have it be having a conversation. Mom has to start pumping right now, right? Mm -hmm. And then when that parent comes down to the NICU first time, right and. Most parents come down within two to six hours. I mean, even our cesarean birth moms are coming down within six hours. If that parent hadn't started pumping by then, the first priority of the NICU nurse has to be get that pump, roll it next to the bedside, and make sure we're pumping, okay? Um, We have a recently published study of just cesarean birth moms And um, it was a huge sample of 468 cesarean birth moms, okay? At our institution, 90% of our cesarean birth moms are pumping within the first six hours, okay? We don't have milk supply issues, right? Even if there's risk factors present. So uh, we just had a speaker today for World Breastfeeding Week Dr. Donna Geddes, who's from the University of Western Australia. You know, there is some really important work now about lactation biomarkers, right? And if we don't establish normal lactation biomarkers in the first three to five days through either the baby directly breastfeeding or through pumping with a high-quality electric pump, it doesn't matter what we do. Two weeks down the road, five weeks down the road, a month down the road, right? It has to be in that critical window of opportunity. So what I, what I, like, beg and plead with NICU nurses is that I understand you're thinking airway, breathing, circulation. Okay? I get that. But you also have to be looking at that parent and saying, but that's my food source. Okay. okay. And, you know, so it, like, I, you know, I, I said, if all else fails, you know, take that power pumping DVD, pop it on, you know, pop the video on for the, the parents to listen to, and get a bedside pump and a pump kit and get them pumping, right? And that can be done, you know, while the nurse is worried about ABC. You can do exactly. that simultaneously. And it's that critical, I think it's also important that the messaging, okay, when parents hear they have to pump every two to three hours for eight or more in 24, they're like, oh my goodness. It's a task. I I am never going to be able to do this. It's never going to work. I never can invest that much time. But I think, again, it's how you package the message, Because we're not asking someone to pump every two to three hours or eight times a day for the rest of their life, okay? We're asking them to do it during this critical time frame, okay? If you do that and people effectively pump in that first five days, okay, they're going to have a robust milk supply, you get someone up to making a liter of milk a day, they can usually cut back to pumping five times a day or six times a day and still maintain that liter a day pumping, all right? But if you don't do that, right, and if someone doesn't effectively come to volume, then they're not going to have milk supply long-term. And, you know, originally... The data out of the Hartman Lab at University of Western Australia said normal milk supply is about 440 to 1220 in a 24-hour period with an average of 750 mLs. Donna Geddes, who now has taken over the Hartman Lab since Peter has retired, you know, they they do thousands of 24-hour milk productions, and they do pre- and post-weets on all their babies. You know, they don't really have any babies who grow and thrive who get under 600 mLs, okay? So when we're talking about what a parent with a sick baby should be able to make, over 600 mLs, right? And my preference is to have them making a liter of milk a day. Because if I can make a liter of milk a day, I don't have to worry about running out of milk in the long term, Right, and so you're not pumping for what the baby's getting here and now, you're pumping for the future, and this is a huge problem not only in the US but globally that parents don't understand. Um, my last international trip before the pandemic was to Botswana, and I have a current research project in Botswana, so it's a lower to middle income country implementing my model there well in Botswana, as you can imagine there's very little resources um prior to this grant um they they didn't even they never even saw a breast pump there were no breast pumps at all so people were just using their hands but the parents were also not told to express milk until the baby started eating uh, so think about so uh, a preemie yeah baby, it might be five, six, seven days. It could be longer if there was complications for uh-huh. the baby to start eating. So the breasts were literally getting no stimulation. So like how like how would you ever suspect that you could have a complete milk supply? And so all these babies, you know, in Botswana are basically dying from neck and sepsis because there's like no
0: human milk. Yeah, they're not eating. It's so sad. You know, it, again, like science speaks and that biomarker study that you mentioned, they start in the first three to five days. Well, those three to five days, most of those days were spent in the hospital if mom right. delivered. And it's like a perfect time to to get them. And I, I know on our, where I work, we're trying to implement, we, we have breast pumps in the DR now, so mom can pump right away. Um, and I think it's getting more of becoming a more multidisciplinary action, like, we're going to put some of this onus on the delivery room nurses to get those moms uh, to start pumping. And, and they need to know the importance of that, especially for these preemie moms and these vulnerable babies that are born um, that really need that to have that long-term supply of milk, which Absolutely. often dwindles.
1: There was a really um, cool – it was a quality improvement project that was just published within the past year, and it was in Spain Um, And they implemented a pump at every bedside. um, And their human milk rates went up statistically significantly, you know? Yeah. So, like, and and I mean, we were really, you know, we've had pumps at every bedside for a long time. But that's because Diane Spatz, you know, made that happen. (laughs) You know, but it's like when you think about pumps compared to the cost of, like, TPN – when you think about pumps compared to like the cost of donor milk donor. or building a milk bank, like putting a pump at every bed spot in labor and delivery or every bed spot in the
0: NICU, it's cheap. Exactly. And money talks. Money talks to right. the hospitals, you know? And um, you know, I wanna just reflect on the part
1: you said about that period, that's the period where the parents are in the hospital too. So, you know, in Thailand, it's it's a low to middle resource country. So pump access is a, a real issue in that country, um, getting pumps outside the hospital setting. But at one of the hospitals I worked with, and this is, they've been doing countrywide implementation, but one of the hospitals I worked with, they literally got like a big dining room table and they mounted pumps. All around the table. So they had, like, eight pumps around <laughs> the table. And the moms would just come and sit together. Aww. And they would all be pumping together. But that was happening during that critical window of time. Mm-hmm. So even then, if they had to leave the hospital and pump with, like, an inferior pump, like a hand pump, or use their hands, once they got their milk supply established, right, it's much easier to use a non-hospital grade pump once your supply is really high, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you think about pumps and the ones that you can get commercially like on the market from your insurance or buy at Target and whatnot, those pumps were never designed for people who were pump dependent. Mm -hmm. They were designed for people who had already established a milk supply and were then going back to work or school, right? That's a really different case scenario where you have a baby who's been effectively feeding at the breast and driving milk supply than someone who's starting off their lactation journey via milk expression.
0: And that's the importance of having those hospital-grade pumps, like you said, at the bedside of every NICU bed, every labor and delivery room, postpartum room.
1: And it makes it easier not only for the family and, and... it makes it easier for the nurse because what nurse wants to run around like a chicken with her head cut off trying to find the pump, right? Uh-huh. That's a dissatisfier. And, you know, the other thing that's part of my model is that we really utilize the partner or the family to really assist with that pumping initiation. So we give the family a job list. You know, and that that's been published. Um, that was published in 2015 in our pump, early pump often CQI project. But, you know, we, we basically say, OK, mom, your only job is to eat, sleep and make milk for this baby. <laughs> you know, rest of family, you're in charge of operating the pump. You're in charge of collecting the milk, labeling the milk. You're in charge of washing the equipment. You're in charge of sterilizing the equipment. You're in charge of starting the human milk oral care with the baby, right? So it's like, the, you know, not all the responsibility just lays on one person.
0: Yeah. And then you have somebody to help you keep accountable. Hey, mom, it's time to pump. Exactly. Or, you know, it's, it's, like, it's a team sport. It's a team effort. It is a team sport. <laughs> So what advice would you give um, institutions or hospitals or NICUs that want to start implementing your 10-step model? How, how would they go about doing that?
1: That's a great question. You know, one of the things I, I want to say, just to, you know, start out with it first, um, you know, is in the U.S., there's been a lot of recent interest in baby-friendly hospital initiative, and that's great. I'm glad that people have wanted to invest time and invest money on having hospitals become baby-friendly. But I want people to remember that the focus of baby-friendly is not on vulnerable infants. The focus of baby-friendly is how do you get healthy-term babies to latch within the first hour and skin-to-skin, okay? So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about, okay, well, is this working for my sick baby population? Or what might we need to do differently for our sick baby population. And I actually uh, worked recently with a baby-friendly hospital that had been designated for many years, but their NICU human milk rates were really bad, like 25% of discharge, okay? And so they hired me to consult with them, you know, to look at what needed to be done. And so, again, with my 10-step model, It was specifically designed for sick babies, okay, and it is stepwise and sequential, meaning if you don't do step one, informed decision making, and you don't do step two, initiation make maintenance and milk supply, you're not going to get to step three, human milk management. You're not going to get to step four, human milk oral care. You're not going to get to skin to skin. You're not going to get to direct breastfeeding, right? So... I think one of the beautiful things, and I think, you know, we have data, I don't think it I know it. We have data from US and non-US, high income and low income countries, that it works, that it's effective, right? And so whenever I get caught up by someone or emailed, you know, I say the first thing you need to do is know what your data is. Are you even tracking data? Do you know how many hospitals don't track data? You know, they might check in they might track initiation but they're not tracking discharge. They're not looking at exclusivity. I I know pff, so few hospitals that are track, tracking time to first pump and pumping frequency and milk volumes, right? So, what I would encourage people to do is to look at their data, gather some baseline data, and then Start by working on one thing at a time. So when Tampa General in Florida did this, and this is published so anyone can go out and read it and replicate it, they took one quarter of the year, they worked on informed decision. They took the second quarter of the year, they worked on initiation, I mean, it's a milk supply. They took the next quarter, right, and they just systematically went through and implemented those changes. And the result was dramatic, right? Decreased time to first feed, increased time um, uh, that the baby got, you know, more human milk, human milk at discharge. One of the most remarkable things, too, was I told you overall human milk rates increased threefold. In their African-American baby population, human milk rates went up sixfold. Wow. Okay. So I think you know stepwise and sequential, and and you start you know start with data first because I guarantee you many NICUs don't even have any idea about any of this data.
0: No, they don't, and 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 they might have that reason on purpose because they don't really want to know <laughs> how how they're doing. Um, and I think I think as a NICU nurse um, that works in a baby friendly hospital, it can be frustrating because some of that. Not some. A lot of it doesn't apply um, to these babies and this vulnerable population that we're taking care of in the NICU. And to have a model that's specific for that for those babies and that population is, you know, very useful and it's and like you said, it's sequential and you go by steps and we have the data. It's there. It works. Right. So and it seems like it's something that it might take a while to implement if you're taking one step a quarter, but your outcomes are are, are gonna be um, you know, amazing. So Exactly. And we can't talk about vulnerable babies in an ICU also without mentioning donor milk. Because I think sometimes we tend to want to think that donor milk and breast milk and human milk is the same, or mother's milk is one and the same. What are your thoughts on donor milk and how that would compare to mom's own milk for these babies?
1: So this is such an important question. Um, I guess it was about three years ago now. I was actually appointed to a global task force with the World Health Organization about milk banking and donor human milk globally and you know donor milk has become this like woo sexy thing to do (laughs) and like countries that have no money right that can't afford breast pumps are like oh let's go build a donor milk (laughs) bank you know and and I mean, we started a donor milk bank at CHOP. It's expensive, right? A pasteurizer is $75,000. I mean, think about how many, you know, pumps you could get for that. (laughs) Anyhow, But, you know, the thing about pasteurized donor human milk is that there's not one piece of data that shows that it's better than mom's own milk or parents' own milk, okay? Um, When we freeze milk we destroy many of the beneficial components we destroy white blood cells we destroy stem cells we reduce iga we reduce lactoferrin when we heat treat the milk those iga lactoferrin are further reduced right and so it's not nearly as potent as parenteral milk or human milk from the lactating parent, right? So really, the biggest thing about pasteurized donor human milk is that it's better than the alternative of formula. The other thing that has become quite complex in present day is we now also have the presence of these companies that are making retorted milk, which is commercially sterile milk, which is basically dead, okay? So (laughs) it's not pasteurization. If you look at the data on donor milk, right, it's all data that looks at parent-owned milk plus pasteurized milk, so heat-treated milk. None of the data has looked at these commercially sterile milks that are room temperature, right, room temperature, safe for three years, I mean, yeah, they sit on a shelf. So it really is no different than an infant formula. Yeah. It's, it's completely dead, right? It's completely dead. Um, And that, you know, so like this whole concept of like, oh, we can just give donor milk and that's, that's good enough. That's okay. It isn't, right? It isn't because even if you talk about pasteurized donor human milk, It's not as good as mom's own milk. If we talk about retorted milk, there's pretty much no data to show that. You know, it's just, I can't even, I have a hard time even talking about retorted milk. But the other thing you have to think about is we know that human milk and breastfeeding is dose dependent, right? So, you know, for sick babies, we know that donor milk reduces neck. That's great, okay? So, but when we talk about other benefits things like reduction in childhood cancers, things like reduction in ear infections, things like improved intelligence, right? We need to have longer doses of human milk than just during the hospital stay. And right now, you know, you really can't get donor milk outside of a hospital setting. It's a very rare instance that a parent can access donor milk when their baby's not sick in a hospital, right? So when you think about the long-term health benefits for that child, they're not gonna get it from just getting a short course of donor milk while they're in the hospital. So don't build milk banks, support people on their lactation journeys.
0: (laughs) So to wrap up, is there any last minute, final words of advice that you would like to share?
1: As you maybe heard during my presentation, um, I use the word human milk a lot. I use the term parents own milk. Uh, I really think it's important that we use gender inclusive language whenever possible. Um, I have, from a long time in my career, have used the term human milk, okay, even before that became more into vogue. I like using the term human milk because it takes away the sexuality part of it, right? Mm -hmm. Because breasts are very sexualized, especially in the U.S., right? And when we talk about it, it is human milk. Mm -hmm. It it is human milk. It just happens to come through a vessel called the breast, right? (laughs) So, you know, we... You know, cow's milk is cow, cow's milk, kangaroo milk is kangaroo milk. You know, we're not calling it breast milk, right? So, using terminology correctly and making sure that we're real clear in our charting that, you know, this is human milk or parents' own milk. Or if it's not, you know, parents' own milk, is it pasteurized donor human milk? Is it retorted milk? Is it informally shared milk? You know, is it formula, right? So actually correct documentation of kind of what that substrate is, is that we're putting into the GI system. And then also, you know, trying to really be um, respectful of people's gender identities. Um, and I, I've always been very lucky that I've gotten to work with a very diverse um, group of families. Um, I've actually published some research about same-sex mothers and their lactation journeys. Um, published some work about transgender. So, you know, I think that if we establish with the parent, like, I'd like to be called a mom. And then we use that term mom. That's great. But um, one of the things we did in 2019 is we made our pumping log, you know, totally gender neutral. So it's called the family pumping log. And it talks about parents versus a mom or a dad. And it talks about human milk versus breast milk. And so I think that's also a really respectful thing to do as nurses is to really kind of be aware of our language when we're working with our families.
0: That's excellent advice, especially um, when we're education is so important as a nurse, and we're trying to get these parents to want to breastfeed, and we're trying to, you know, establish this milk supply and to use that. And be aware um, of your inclusive language is is really important. But I want to thank you, Dr. Spatz, for joining us today. You have armed us with so much knowledge. And I hope everybody can take that back to the bedside, especially everything that you told us about science. And, you know, science and knowledge is power. And that's what we try to always promote. Um, And, you know, that's that's what we're going to use to help these parents. Make great informed decisions, and hopefully everybody can take all of the knowledge that you gave us to their units, and maybe start the ten-step model program on your unit, or just bring that science um, t- to the table and and get these get your rates up and and improve ultimately outcomes for our tiny vulnerable babies. Awesome!
1: Thank you, and happy World Breastfeeding Week. Yes, happy month. World Breastfeeding, Breastfeeding you
0: know, Week and month. month. Make sure you never miss an episode of Nancast by subscribing now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks for your support and letting us into your ears. Have a great day.